doing well, doing well. Woke up fairly early today. It's, it's becoming very boring to sleep for some reason. I don't know why. It's like, I sleep well, but it's just very boring. <laughs> it's like when you finish, the, you wake up, you're like, eh, okay. I'm guessing, I'm guessing things on your side are, uh, are different. You're still busy? Uh, too busy. A little too busy, unfortunately. Come tell, tell the, people, the, the people that are listening and the future listeners of this incredible to be podcast a few things about yourself and things that things that you do uh sure sure so my name is ryan uh alan hancock i'm a civil rights attorney uh from the south originally based in philadelphia pennsylvania in the united states and i basically sort of my work kind of does i have two different aspects of my professional life which is I started and co-founded uh, a nonprofit called the Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity, and we deal with all things related to the collateral consequences of criminal records, um, people who've been incarcerated or about to be incarcerated. Uh, but I also represent unions and employees um, and workers in lawsuits against uh, employers. So, hmm. How did you get to it? <clears throat> What's your... Uh... What was, your, uh, what was your calling, as we call it? How did you get to the point that you're like, after law school, to go to civil rights? Yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's a good question um, because I think it actually takes a little bit back, which is where I'm from. So I was born in Albany, Georgia, which interestingly is, um, you know, in the deep south, really, really deep south. Um, there's two things that my, my sort of um, where I'm from, which is one, during... Uh, the county next to where I grew up in Darty County uh, is the county in which uh, hung the most black folks um, per capita. So that's where I came from. So I came from the deep south and, and that definitely impacted sort of my ideology around the world and sort of what I wanted to do. Um, what is so it? What is it when you say per capita? What is it if you can put it in numbers like, you know, normal numbers? Yeah, I don't remember now. I, I don't have that right in my tips of my hand, but it's it's a lot of people. Um, and actually, I should have said not only hung, but also burned down the most black churches. So this is this is sort of where I come from. Um, and I'm not saying that you know in my lifetime it was like that. But, yeah, of course. You not. know, steeped deep in history and understanding, or having to deal with and grapple with sort of those issues um, and what it means. And so I wanted to be able to try to use law as a way, as a tool, right? One tool for uh, social change. Yeah, kind of a correction, correction movement. And, Correct. Yeah. How do you feel the situation is, I mean, I can't compare what's going on now to back then, that's for sure. But how do you feel the situation is in the mindset of people in the South? You think it's changed? You think it's, I mean... It's something that they can they can say it's like, you know, it's are they ashamed of it? I mean, the descendant of, of these people, are they are they like, OK, it's part of who we are or I always I always wondered about it. I mean, we live in Berlin and this is a country that's, you know, it's like being Jewish in Berlin was if I would say 20 years ago, I'm moving to Berlin. People people will, you know, still people didn't buy German cars or they didn't do anything that's even related to Germany. So I'm imagining how is it now to be part of this when this is part of your heritage and 
if we go more closely, it's even part of your immediate heritage. So how is it, how is it compared for you? Like, how does it feel when you go back to the family, when you go back home? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to go back, but I mean, if you're asking me about sort of what it's like in the South now, I mean, it's, it's quite complicated and deep and dark and, uh, you know, uh, complicated is the right thing. And what I mean by that is, it's like, unlike, for example, in Berlin or Germany, you know, or the German state, I mean, there's no doubt that the German state or, or the German people, not all, of course, uh, definitely atoned. I mean, they, they recognized, the state itself recognized its implications in war atrocities, yeah. et cetera. That's, <clears throat> some, that's something that the South didn't do, right? And so we never really, and this country, meaning America, has not really grappled with our deep history um, or our troubling history of our past. And, and because of that, I think we make a lot of the same mistakes over and over again, mm. where Germany has been able to, like, for example, if we're using that as an excuse or using that as an example, has been able to move forward in a lot more proactive ways. So the South is difficult. I mean... I, are we embarrassed? I think some people are. I clearly was. Um, but, you know, let's be very clear. The people who are living in the South right now didn't commit those atrocities. So, no, of course not. You know, that's why it's complicated. So it, it's, it's, you know, and a lot of times when I was growing up and, and people would be like, well, that wasn't me. So why should I continue to be held to a standard that that wasn't me? Um, and I think that that's somewhat of a fair argument um, to, to make. I just don't know what you do and where you go after that. You feel like uh, if we compare, that's a good comparison to Berlin, but you feel, because for example, people don't, German people can't joke about the Holocaust. It's like that, it's, it's not there yet. And when I say joke, I feel like the Jewish people in this situation, the, the comedy is a kind of ease out of the situation. It's not about to belittle it or make it like worthless. Just, just the opposite, just an, Another, another way for you to, you know, to just manage the pain of it, manage, like, it's a kind of drug, you know, the jokes. You feel like, uh, you feel like the comedy, the, the things that came from the South, I'm sure you're way more aware than I am, I have no idea. But it's like, you feel like comedy and stuff from there is using this to, to portray it, or is this is a, it became a global, uh, global like american because there is a lot of african african-american comedy which is yeah. like black black comedy which is most of it starts with this like starts with slavery genocide you know this is like the beginning of of this and then it becomes okay we can joke about ourselves now how are we how are we behaving like in in the day-to-day -day, you know question yeah. is it's already there you feel like it's like in I'm sure there is, there are black people back where you live now. No, it's like it's not changed. Oh, I mean, like where the I communities, come. yeah, the communities live together. I imagine now. Yeah, so I mean, that's that that brings up a good point, and I'll come back to your comedy question. But it it brings up a good point, which is when I grew up, um, the South is almost depending on where you live is predominantly black, right? Um, so that's what's sort of interesting. I mean, it was very segregated in some ways, but in some ways not. So, for example, I always grew up in schools, public schools, in which it was uh, a majority black or close to a majority black, um, which was really great. That's, you know, I think a benefit of a public school system. And then I moved up to Philadelphia and just realized that, you know, 
while there are lots of people of color here in Philadelphia, the segregation also works and is different, right? So yeah. the approach to class and race remains the same, uh, different degrees, of course. But it was very shocking to me when I moved to Philly and was like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, so that's interesting. Like, for example, I have friends that when I went to art school that went to public schools in, say, New Jersey and didn't go to school with anybody of color at all, right? Yeah. Um, and I was just kind of like, really? That's, that's interesting. Um, that's different than I would would assume when I moved here. Yeah, which, yeah, it's funny because it should be open. Like in this area, yeah. like the, the East Coast should be like, okay, everybody. I never, I never understood. I mean, it's somebody from like way outside. I never understood. How is it not better already? I mean, how is this? Who is the one that's driving this kind of division Still, even now when I see, when we see the news and we, we can touch this Corona shit, you know, and we see the news, we, they, it becomes like a racial thing already. Again, it's no, everybody knows, every smart person knows that it doesn't matter if you're black, white, whatever, whichever, whichever uh, ethnicity you are, if you eat shit, <laughs> you know, if you don't eat good food, if you don't have good health system, you know, good healthcare or whatever, you'll most probably get sick. And with this virus, sadly, you will get sick. You will be worse than the, like other people in this situation. The question that I'm always asking myself, who is still driving these forces to divide like the country between people? Yeah. And this, this I never understood. Well, I mean, I think it's complicated. And if I was able to answer that in a succinct and um, identify the discrete actors, I would win a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. But what I would say is that it goes back to the sort of what we were talking about for Germany versus the South, which is our country has really failed to grapple with the structural inequities of our country, right? And that goes into race and class. And of course they do so when we fail to grapple with that on large part because the people in power benefit from that, right? They use those different things as wedges, whether it's race, whether it's class, and, you know, everybody uses those with regard to politics at some point. But I think combining that with the failure of America to grapple with its past and admit its past. And then also America has this like identity that's very interesting that I think is very positive in lots of ways and very negative. And what I mean by that is America, like Americans and America ideology, we don't look back. Right. And it yeah. kind of goes to that other piece like which can be very good because it's like, oh, here's a failure, there's a failure, we're just going to move forward, we're going to get better at it, which I think is the positive piece. But the negative piece is, is oh, maybe we should like take historical, pre you know, take historical precedent in a, into account to determine whether we've made these mistakes before, or whether we can make we can prevent these mistakes in the future. What do you feel is the basic, let's say, you know, let's, let's try to you know, just try to dissolve it a bit and just like make it less com complicated. How do you think, what kind of uh, responsibility you think the states can take to create, like even the basic things, what do you think even one, two, three, four, five things that could work, that could change, could make a change, not even now, maybe the next generation, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's becoming worse again. It yeah. felt like it's becoming, it's becoming better. I mean, but, and you're in the field, that's what you're doing all day. I, I think I still think that the majority of of, of criminal acts come from from uh, come from uh, like distinctive like different different groups like ethnicity groups. It's not. It's still even 
it's still even a thing. That's the funny thing about the U.S. It's still even a thing. I don't think in the U.K. they say African, African England, you know, African British yes. or whatever. It's not. They're British. It's not even a thing. It doesn't matter if they're black, white, whatever. That's why. But I was thinking, what would you say? How will, how will like even the basic stuff, how can you change the basic stuff? I imagine in the street level, even in Georgia, I'm sure everybody's getting along. I've, I have no doubt that most of it, it's, you know, it's <clears throat> fear that people put in, in TV and news segments and whatever. There is some evil forces behind it that's trying to control people. There's no doubt about it. But I'm saying, what, like, what do you see from your line of work? Let's, let's make it more focused. What do you see from your line of work that you can, what people can do to do a little change, you know? <laughs> well, even I mean, in the, even in whatever, you know, it could be in so many things, but what do you, what do you always feel? If, if, if any, you know, what do you always feel like? Oh, it was like something like this small that was missing to change this person's life, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously something probably most of your listeners don't understand um, because if they live outside of the U S I mean, one thing is just access to healthcare alone would radically change a vast majority of Americans' lives, right? So just having a base ability to go see a doctor, both for preventative as well as if you get sick, would literally fundamentally change. I mean, I think, you know, one of my, the reason I also became so steadfast on, for example, a Medicare for all proposal, which is radical in the American system, but important is because of like personal experience. So, I mean, my father, uh, we, we grew up relatively uh, working class. My father worked his ass off his entire life um, and provided for four um, kids and his wife. And he died at 54 years old and he died from a stroke. And, you know, that happens in America, um, which, which, you know, is, that's not really the problem here um, that I'm really going to drill down on. The problem is the fact that once my father died, my grand, my mother lost her house because of medical bills. Medical right? bills, so yeah. Higher world was um, completely crushed. And this is a this is a, a my father was a Republican conservative. Um, tried very difficult. Tried very hard in his life. Did all of the right things. Did everything that the state told him he should do. And yet, at the end of his life, the person that he was with for thirty-seven years lost her house and had to move into an apartment and find work. Right. Yeah. So those are the kinds of structural changes that I think people don't realize that being poor in America is a full-time job. Okay, people always really, really want to talk about how um, specifically the right wing, they talk about uh, poor being lazy, right, the welfare state, these sorts of things. And these are just, it's obnoxious, and it's wrong. First of all, for if you're looking at the South, for example, uh, it's mostly white people who are on, you know, government assistance, right? Yeah. Uh, people of color obviously are too, but those people aren't lazy. That it's, it's the failure of our governments to provide structures and jobs, well-paying jobs that, ability, that allow people to live their full selves. Are there people that are going to take, care, take advantage of the system? Of course. But those are minute, minute amount of yeah. people compared to the large, vast majority of Americans or people or humans that want to work, regardless of their political persuasion. 
You think it's the it's uh, but where does it start? In the state, in the cities? Who who can change it? Who can let's say if, even in a, in a dream world? Who can who can create a like who can create a kind of a, a, a new reality? Like create a new system? I don't know for these people. Even if you create like a parallel system in the same place, you know, because most of these people are just out of the system, literally. You see it if it's from if you say welfare, if you say homeless people, which is the, in I, I don't even know the numbers, the numbers are crazy they're, which they're is crazy which yeah. is which is it's not relatable to any country in the world, you know maybe it's the state in Africa it's not no, in the, not in the not in the not in the western world I mean definitely for it not to be the country the quote richest, most powerful country in the yeah. world right. And that's the big that's the big lie here um, you know I, I, who can are, change it in your in your it? in your perspective yeah who can change it forget the top the top the top just you know you know it's like uh, it's like like in the sopranos they always said money goes up shit goes down that's what it is who, who can who can change it who can change it like in the I don't know in the state in the state level in the city level in the county level you So I would say I would say that actually every person has the ability to move for change and I radical and I fundamentally believe that I fundamentally believe that each person has to engage I mean democracy dies without inaction right or without action or by inaction and democracy requires sustained efforts to do that so you there is no easy answer with regard you're asking me about the state I mean the how federalism and states work in the United States are kind of different. I mean, you were seeing these experiments happen though. And for example, where I live in the city of Philadelphia, in large part because the federal government has failed us, they have basically enacted or expanded benefits to a whole host of people who have never been, uh, been able to access benefits. So for example, if we're talking about domestic workers in, in Philadelphia, which are predominantly women and, and people of color, right? And they work in super abusive um, working conditions. Well, the city of Philadelphia created a fund in which for the first time, domestic workers can apply to that fund and get, um, get uh, their sick days paid, for example. So they're actually able to go and get benefits and access those benefits. So there's all kinds of little things, but what it, the answer to your question ultimately is this, and it's not cliche, which is, You, in each individual has to move the dial themselves through mutual aid, through talking to your neighbor, to talking to your friend, et cetera. We all have to gather together and move in collective action because only collect and collective action is going to save us, not the state. Yeah, I, I believe in that also. I, I, but I wonder, like, if now we would get, I would give you 10 million bucks for a PR, What, what will be your five steps? People will say, great, whatever you, whatever you say, cliche or not, that's great. What, do I, what can I do tomorrow morning to change this situation? What <laughs> me, Chen that lives here? Little things, I'm not, I can't change everything, but it's little by little. Everybody knows that that's, how, that's the way that things are happening. But what, what are the five things in your brain or whatever, how many things that I can do to change? To change something. Yeah, so... so... What I would say is I was working with my friend Devin Theridor, who is an immigration lawyer out in Seattle, and we went to Pakistan together um, in 2006 and 2007. The military, uh, the Pakistani military 
took over another coup and uh, arrested about 3,000 civil society members, including my friend Devin, as well as the, all of the Chief, Just, the Chief Justice Iftikhar Muhammad Chaudhry and the entire basically judicial system of Pakistan. So I was able and lucky enough to get into the country and represent um, Chief Justice Iftikhar Muhammad Chaudhry and, and the lawyers movement on the ground. And we started thinking about this because it was like, well, wow, what, what you know, what can an ordinary citizen do in their time? And I think it's really important to one sort of think about that we're, this political change or societal change take is a pendulum, right? It swings back and forth. So this, first of all, we need to remove this idea about winning or losing, because guess what? We're going to win some and we're going to lose some. And when you take that dichotomy out of it or that, sort of oppositional piece, I think it gets a lot better. And, th and that's really important for like activists because a lot of people get burned out, right? You, they go hard for five years, they feel like they've had a little increment changes, they get burned out and they go. And that's because they think about it as a sole goal. Are we winning or are we losing? So first you have to take that apart. Then I think you think about, you reinvest and, and go back inside of yourself and say, how can we resist? And we were calling it resistance on all levels. Now, I, I, I dislike the idea of resistance now because it's been co-opted in America. The resistance yeah. means something against Trump, which I think is just a, a sideshow because Trump is only Trump is really sort of only the, you know, it's only the disease. He's not the one that's caused it. Right. I mean, he's, yeah. or I should say yeah, he's the blister. He's the um, face is the face of many, many years. Correct. Of neglect so, in the U.S. Yeah. So when you start thinking about resistance on all levels, then everything becomes a liberatory and radical departure from your normal day life. And that can include everything from, honestly, it, it can include everything from recycling, right? Making sure that you're recycling, making sure that the food that you're using is not wasteful. And, and this ideology or this approach to radical change, actually, I, I have people that were not radical at all or thought about this in large parts and said, oh, well, once you change that um, idea about me, our uh, idea that you can all of a sudden engage in all parts of your lives in radical ideology, people started to do that. And then they started to build up and then they started to go to protests. They started writing their legislatures. They started to run for office. You started, you started seeing a lot more people engaged in that process because that's what this is about. I think you only need to do one thing, which is engage in the political process, period. Everybody hates politics, but you have to do it. How do you get over the fear? I feel like most people will ask you, will say, yeah, you're right, but I'm afraid. I mean, they could be afraid of their next door neighbor. They could be afraid of any situation that's happening. They could be afraid that this will cost them, I don't know, whatever, you know, the, com the country's monitoring everything whatever you never know how it's going to backfire but you know i feel like these times the fact that we're so the like all this connection we're so connected we're we we became so surrogated from the whole situation and it's easier for them to push this to push this kind of everything they push this from whatever from supporting facebook or in everything they do and and all the all the all the things that happened in the last few years that this is actually the new control. This is the new sugar. Even what we're speaking now on Instagram, which we, I'm, I'm using because we're, I would say we're smarter than average, you know? We're using it for our own benefit, but most people are, this has been used against them. Mm -hmm. You know, if in anything, this is brainwash. 
exactly like the past. That's another propaganda machine. So how do you, how do you find the, I mean, how can you, how can you expect people to, to change? I mean, how, I'm always, I'm always, I'm always looking for that spark that's going to change everything. Well, if I think that if it comes from the sorry, if it comes from the group that needs this change more than everything, so it's even creating more fear, you know, like oh, there's riots, there you know a lot of social unrests, and you know you're like, oh, I can't be a part of that, yeah, you know, I see it even in Israel, there's a lot like the Ethiopian descendants, people from Ethiopia they're in in israel it's and I'm sure it's like this in everywhere else, it's always the last person to come that that eats all the shit. You know, it's like when I would grow up, it used to be Russian. After that, it's uh, Ethiopians. After that, now it's people from other states in Africa. You know, it's like, it's always like this. The last one here, it's about status. You know, you build your yeah. status in the place. I don't know if it's here like this. Um, you know, uh, I think it's the wedge against the, this community, this African-American black community, you know. It's, it's, it's something, you know, as much as Trump is... Is trying to direct it to China and to Mexico, and this, this is not people from the outside. This, this are people that you know. This is American people. I can, I can understand the hate compared to, you know, if you think about outside people, it's all right. I can understand that, but I, I can't understand the inside hate. That's the, that's the one thing that 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 fears me the most about it. That. How, how can you get the normal person, like the one that watches TV, you know, how can you get him to get out and do something? Well, I mean, I, I think that you, you sort of answered your own question. Yeah. And, and I'll go back to my, my own answer, which is you have to have conversations with people, real conversations. And you have to have real conversations with people that you don't agree with. Um, I'm doing that all the time, right? I mean, let me be very clear that a majority of my people, and when I say my people, I mean my, my family, my friends from the South. Um, they, they disagree with me. We disagree with each other radically, radically on, on politics and, and views of how, how government and the state should treat its citizens. But that being said, I, you have to have those conversations. And the failure of us to talk, whether it's in real life or even through different um, apps, for example, and have real substantive conversations is really doing a disservice because de de democracy and democratic ideology is based upon that very nature. It is, it is about people reaching out and touching each other, right? Because in theory, in theory, um, why we disagree in politics, uh, the, the base should be that we, whatever we're advocating really is in the best interest of, of every citizen. Now, I, I can tell you that the Republican Party at this point goes without saying that they do not believe, and I do not believe that they have the best interest of, of, of all citizens um, in, in mind. That being said, that doesn't mean that Republicans don't, the individual Republicans don't, yeah. right? And I think oh. it's important to have those conversations. I wonder, I mean, um, I just run it through you, like, by you, that I'm, like, we're watching TV, and I'm, like, this, whatever, doctors, scientists, people in the White House, why won't you just tell people, stop eating fried food? It's as simple as that. That's what I'm saying. There is basic answers to complicated questions. Yes. Underlying health conditions, you know, the beauty of saying that, and now blaming everything and under, no. 
it's about simple education. It starts literally, if you, if you think, I'm thinking about myself, how can I change myself? It's what I put in myself, in my body, what I listen to, what I hear, you know, what I read. This is the only thing. How can I, how will I act outside? That's great also, but I'm just saying. But why, I'm always thinking, why won't they do something like that? What's the reason not to do it? I know that I've, I find that maybe I'm too romantic or optimistic. I'm like, I find it hard that all this business kind of uh, business approach to everything. And these are my friends and the people that grow the chicken are my friends and the people that do the milk and this, you know, which are all the companies that run America and the gas and the oil and whatever. But it's as simple as telling now, listen, fried food can give you corona. You know? right. It's like as simple as that. This can change well, everything. Yeah, well, I think it could change everything for the middle class to upper middle class. I think when you're talking to um, individuals who don't have access um, or like, so for example, my clients in the criminal justice system, like I, this is not an excuse, but let me be very clear about it. Um, knowing that fried foods will uh, leave you to a left life expectancy, my clients don't give a shit because guess what? Their life expectancy already is yeah. way down because you're asking a person to say, stop eating fried foods when, you know, a single mother is raising two kids who's taking their kids to a public school who has asbestos and the school's falling down and has poor educational opportunities that she has to go rush and get to two, two separate part-time jobs, right? Making minimum wage to try to put food on the table. Oh, by the way, because she's working part-time jobs and because the United States does not have any robust health system, there is no health care. There is no preventative health, et cetera. So, uh, you know, to, to, and that's the same thing with it goes like, oh, excuse me, why aren't you recycling? Really? Recycling? They're worrying about putting food on the table. They're worrying about not dying and getting shot in their neighborhood because of poverty and issues. So I think it does. I think you're right about like the class of like you and I, right? The creative yeah. class, et cetera. I think that you're right. I think that that can make a big difference and it should make a difference. And that's why I do think we have, we have a specific um, responsibility to our fellow citizens and humans to lead by example on these issues. But I don't think we can preach to people, um, preach to people that are, are striving to live those sorts of things without providing the sort of wraparound yeah. services that they need. That's the, that's the thing I find the hardest of it all that, you know, that you think about how can I even, how can I even affect anything? You know, it's only, it can only be done in a state level. It can only be done in a, in a federal level. You know, it's like, if you say Medicare for all, and universal healthcare and healthcare, you know, for everybody, this of course will change everybody's life. Mm -hmm. It's half of the things that you need to worry about. Everybody's getting sick. It's all around the world. It's not, and we know why they're getting sick also, even though there is predisposed thing, but also, you know, like I said, it's mostly the things that we eat which is bad. It is true because it's a machine, you know, and people and with the bad when you don't have good education. So, you know, people don't even know that this is you see it even in our, you know, you say class, but I see it also in my class, middle class, whatever. People are not they can, you know, they can say they can feel like we, you say one thing and they, and they think another thing and they can't understand how you get from A to B even, you know, in your head. How do you get from what I eat to how I feel? I have hypertension. What is, is that to do with my chicken? You know, stuff like that. But I'm saying, if you say, so basically, 
that's the that's the that's the i don't know that's the thing that i always find it hard to to wrap my hand around you can help them how do you help them you help them in the you know in courts you can help them you know with the the thing is that the law is against them also you know well, it's not it's, it's not only this even everybody's looking for them you know yes. at some point it feels like everything is against them all the odds And it is, all the odds are against them. And that's what's really important. One is to recognize that. Two is really a fundamental approach. You know how you help people? Um, you listen to them and you ask them, what do they need, right? That's actually how we founded my nonprofit, which is, you know, look, a bunch of four lawyers got together and we said, we think we know what's going on in the criminal justice system. We think we know how we could have a large impact in this class or this community, our community here in Pennsylvania, who are overly incarcerated, overly arrested and incarcerated. But we said, well, I don't know. So let's make sure we understand. And we went out to the, communi the communities most impacted by the issue, meaning the we just said, if you had access to a lawyer, what do you need to make your life better? And over and over again, people said, our criminal records are holding us back from getting jobs, resources, access to health care, et cetera. If you could help us with that, that would be a big help. And so right now we've, we've filed over 12,000 different expungement petitions. We're the largest filer in the, in the United States to remove criminal records from people's records so they can access government services, right? Um, a lot of people don't realize that In Pennsylvania, for example, or in the United States, your criminal record can hold you back. And your criminal record, by the way, includes conviction and non-conviction records. So th there are 800, over 800 different statutes on the books alone in my state, which is Pennsylvania, that limits the right. Even if you just get arrested. That's what you're saying. Even if you just get arrested. That's correct. Any, what's, the, what's the minimum? Like, what's the minimum of the, which, which crime act do you need to get filled? To get like, uh, you know, it, so it will stay in your criminal record. Like what's the minimum, call it the minimum crime act or whatever. Yeah, so. so even misdemeanors, yeah. even anything. Misdemeanor, uh, summary offenses. So my, I specifically specialize also in suing employers for not hiring people with certain criminal records or arrest records. Hmm. I've seen over and over employers deny people jobs for summary offenses. By the way, they call these summary offenses is offenses which like, you know, I mean, smoking on a, on a SEPTA platform or a train platform, right? Like sort of life of crime issues that are really not criminal, right? I mean, they're just like breaking a rule that doesn't really impact anybody's lives except maybe theirs. So we, we've seen people, um, you know, rejected from jobs and benefits for both arrests and convictions. And, and we, I fu fundamentally believe, and this is, goes to my ideology period, is that people change, right? Um, you're not the sum of the worst thing that you've ever done. I mean, right? Like, I certain, I'm sure you don't want to be judged on the worst thing that you've done in your life, right? Well, you have the luxury to do that. I do as well. Yeah. But I fundamentally believe that people have an opportunity uh, to change, and they should be given that opportunity to change. Because in the criminal justice system, for example, you have hard-on-crime prosecutors who believe, for example, well, see, they recidivate. They go back in. They go back in. See, they're, they're like hard criminals. Well, that's easy to say when you yeah. don't identify or you don't even acknowledge the the structural inequities to somebody who's coming out of prison right like oh by the way here's five dollars good luck 
right? I mean, a human has to eat, right? And if you've completely kept them out of the job market, if you've, collect, you've completely kept them out of um, getting education, if you've kept them out of being able to access governmental benefits, what do you think that, how, what is that person gonna do and resort to, to eat or to take care of their family? That doesn't excuse it, but we do have to actually identify the impediments and the structural inequities before we can have a real conversation about how we change them. You think that, what do you need more? If you say I need more, what, more social workers? What do you need? No, what do you need more? Like which kind of like, I mean, why not reprogram, you know, people that are out of the system to help people in the system? You know, the yeah. same, I mean, if, if the simplest, the simplest kind of solution of, because basically they need people, like you said, to listen to them. You're talking about lawyers, this, but it comes way, you need way, people are way more simple people than somebody that learned law, you know, somebody that is a lawyer. You need like a social worker, a lot of social workers, people get out of jail of, of misdemeanor and stuff like this. And that's what I'm saying. They can't really, it's this cycle that they keep doing, you know, the same over and over thing because there's no way for them to get out of it. The question is, I mean, most people don't care. I mean, how can, how can you, you can help them, but uh, for example, how can I help them? That's the well, question. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I want to be very clear that a majority of people who are arrested and even convicted of a crime in at least Pennsylvania and including in Philadelphia never set foot in jail or prison. So that's even more astounding, right? So you have a majority of the people who actually the state, the state itself says, we are not going to incarcerate you for yeah. whatever you did. Oh, by the way, but you still can't get a job. You still can't access education and all of these benefits. Those are called what they call collateral consequences, which are civil penalties that were not that are attached to criminal penalties. Right. That's called a collateral consequence. So absolutely. Let me be very clear. I'm, I'm a civil rights lawyer and I, I am one of the few people, probably lawyers that love what they do. Um, but my approach to sort of social change, actually, lawyers have a very minor role in that. And that's because law is really just only one tool in which out of an entire toolbox to use, right? So if you're looking at tools for social change, you're looking at direct action, you're looking at, you know, you're looking at violence, you're looking at voting, you're looking at all kinds of different tools. Law is only one of those tools. So I would actually say we don't need more lawyers. Um, <laughs> in fact, lawyers are the ones that create this problem and, and to begin with. Yeah, they need the and, job. <laughs> Social workers would be, be massively helpful, right? But I think it goes back to what we need is just more social safety nets, more ability for people, the, to, for the state to realistically understand the impediments, the structural impediments that are before these individuals and then do that. And Philadelphia, by the way, for example, has done an insanely good job of actually doing that. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. The government has worked very difficult from are very hard to to make it to to reenter society in a better way. Like, for example, you know, the city of Philadelphia passed an ordinance that made it unlawful for an employer to ask about a criminal record on the application of employment. And that they can only ask after a job offer has been made. Right. Mm. Because there's no doubt that criminal records are important to job hiring. Right. Like, I mean, no one's arguing, including me, that. So, for example, a sex offender should be a teacher. Right. That's not what we're saying. Um, what we were what we were seeing was is that my clients who are poor already were being denied jobs from sweeping a warehouse because of a you know DUI really yeah. like how does that have anything to do with the job? <clears throat> you? 
So the city of Philadelphia has done that. And they've, they've, they've put a lot of money into, and we have an entire re-entry coalition based on this sort of ideology and method approach to making sure that a majority of uh, people can get back. Because in Philadelphia alone, we're talking about one fourth of the entire population has yeah. a criminal record. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Would you implement it like in a, any kind of dream? Would you implement some kind of rating system? For meaning somebody with a kind of criminal history can do some kind of works and some cannot. I mean, something that will be like, okay, like you said, sweep a warehouse, you are a three in our, in our range, you know? That's all right, you can do that. Would you do something like, like would, would this could help something? So, there, so there, there's something like that sort of does exist in the sense that you can get, in some states, you can get what they call like, um, uh, you know, a, a, a piece of paper that basically says you pose no risk, right? Yeah. But I mean, social science data, and this is like really important. So a lot of people just have actually looked at this and, and looked at recidivism, recidivism rates in particular, which is, you know, the likelihood that the person's going to reoffend. And I would say that, well, it, it says basically that all of the all of the research has determined that if the person stays out of jail or prison, right? Because those are two different things, actually, and I can yeah. talk about that in a minute. But if, if they stay out of incarceration for a certain period of time, they are no more likely to reoffend than someone who has never offended at all. So I would just say it's a blanket policy, right? It's a case by case basis. First of all, if you have an old stale record, if you've been crime free or arrest, not even arrest free, but incarceration free or guilty um, free, right? That you have not been um, found guilty of a crime. Like why, why is this even an issue? I, I just don't understand because first of all, you got to look at the history of American incarceration. We're, we're literally the most incarcerated nation in the world. Okay? It's business. It's a big business. Period. Period. I mean, we're talking about totalitarian regimes across the country. Do not jail as many people as America does. Right. And guess what? Through the 70s and 80s and 90s, those that mass incarceration did not make us safer, right? That's the thing, that's the big lie. That's what they told us is, we gotta lock these people up. We got to because we're gonna be less safe if we don't, but guess what? It didn't work. So now we've just destroyed entire communities, yeah. right? And we're not, and we're not more safe. <laughs> yeah, but I can understand if you look hindsight, it's a big business, it's a contract business. It's not like in, I feel like in Israel, it's a governmental thing, you know, it's part of the government or in a lot of countries in Germany, in this, it's not a contract thing. It's literally well, run by the government. Here it's run by contractors in the no, US. No, no, so, so that's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, we do have private incarceration here, don't get me wrong. That's mostly in the immigration detention centers. Okay. Um, but a, a private incarceration is actually just a, a small percentage. It's, it's run by state governments. Um, a vast majority, I think it's 90% are still run by governments. But not to say that private, you're exactly right, that private incarceration does happen in the United States. Yeah. And some of those incarceration contracts are literally based upon um, how many beds are filled up. So think about that per <laughs> Like that's just... <clears throat> just... Just the opposite of ICU beds. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I, I was wondering, uh, let's go back to prison. Prison has always been something that I'm 
I'm fascinated about. Now let's say I'm I'm out of prison. I'm John Doe and I got five bucks in my hand, like you said before. What do I do? I can't get any job. How can you help me? I'm saying like, how can you help me? How can you help me get a job? So what I do, because um, we do this all the time, is that we, we, we basically help people find different resources. So this can be, for example, it depends on how long you're in prison as well, right? Because in prison, some prisons, um, there is some rehabilitative efforts. I mean, that's another problem, too, is like the lack of effort, right? We just allow yeah. people to rot in prison instead of actually <clears throat> giving them the ability to, to, to change. And, and this is really important because people don't realize this. Um, a vast, vast, overwhelmingly vast majority of individuals who are in jail and prison return to the very neighborhoods in which they were arrested from, right? So um, It's their home usually, back, you know? <laughs> right? They're coming back, yeah, right? And so as a society, do we want to give them an opportunity to come back better than when they left? Or do we want to, we want to say, all right, you did something really bad. We moved you from society. But while we removed you, we're going to make it really, really hellish for you. We're not going to give you any way to, to make it better for yourself. And then, oh, by the way, come back into our community, right? I mean, that's, it's insane. It's just a really short-term thought on it. So if I'm going to help you from prison, I'm going to make sure I'm going to give you resume writing skills. I'm going to um, help you find a job personally. We have both job placement coordinators uh, with my nonprofit. So they work with individuals on a day-to-day -day basis. And we know the employers. We've built over the years of suing employers as well as working with employers. We have a whole host of employers that will hire people with criminal records because they understand that oftentimes they are the best workers, right? They are thankful to have a job yeah. and they work their ass off. Yeah. Um, so They'll do everything not to go back. That, absolutely. People don't want to go back to jail and prison, right? That's like another misnomer. Like nobody wants to go to jail. No one wants to go to prison. That's what's like such a bullshit thing. What's the difference between the two before you continue? Yeah, that's a great question. In, in <laughs> Pennsylvania, jail is uh, usually short-term incarceration. So jail is where people are held pre-trial. So they're oh, okay. found guilty or they can hold up a, basically a sentence of two years or, or less. And anything two years or more is a state sentence. It's amazing that you can wait two years until you even get a trial. Well, I mean, it depends on how poor you are. It could be Yeah. Yeah. It depends on how poor you are. And, and that's actually an important thing too, right? Because in, in America, our prisons are built in rural communities, usually conservative communities, as a way, as political favor, to give jobs to those communities. And so you're taking, for example, in Philadelphia, where a majority of people are people of color, um, you're, you're taking them out of their city and you're putting them across the state yeah. into rural communities and where they're incarcerated, which, by the way, what does that do? It completely breaks the familial ties in which they had to their family because somebody can't take a 12-hour bus very often to get to their family to be able to speak to them. They certainly can't afford the absorbent fees, phone fees or telefees for in prison as well. So now you've broken, you not only have you broken that individual by not giving them opportunities to succeed in prison, but you've also broken the familiar link, by the way, which is ironic, because remember, the Republican Party always talks about how important the family structure yeah. is. <laughs> That's crazy. What's the next step after writing a resume, helping him getting get a get his uh, get his record expunged or 
Yeah, you get a record, record expunged. You the 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 number one indicator of recidivation, uh, res, uh, stopping someone from going back, or it, is actually access to housing. So, uh, jobs and housing are the two major hurdles that people have. So, you have to give somebody stable housing, or find stable housing, and then you have to be able to give them um, an opportunity at a job. And so those are the things that we do. Um, and then if there's long-term success, then there's pardons and there's other commutation pieces that you could ask for later in life after they prove and quote, they, they are, you know, reputable members of society. What's the statute of limitation of most, most of this kind of offend, like offended, offenders, like uh, whatever, misdemeanors, all this kind of stuff. How long does it stay in your record? So in Pennsylvania, it stays in your record forever. Um, in your pub, in your criminal record is actually publicly available online. That includes non-conviction and conviction records. So the Pennsylvania court makes everybody's criminal record available for everyone to see and it stays on forever. Um, there's some, it's like a Facebook for, uh, yeah, uh, Facebook for not, not getting, not giving anybody a job. Correct. Correct. Why not take this off? That's a good start. What's up? Why not take this off? Like this because system? Uh, because it's done through the, through the a co-equal uh, separate branch of the government. It's done through the judges and there's no way to get this out. And they're trying to balance the First Amendment rights of people to know what, what's happening in their communities. Now, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that, but not really. I think this is, should be on a need-to-know basis. Should add it on Facebook. Yeah. Also, if you have a criminal record. Uh, people have tried that, right? In, in America, they have, and you can see this. It's, it's kind of come out of favor now because we've successfully sued these companies, but it's like mugshots.com in yeah. the South. You'll, for example, at the at the 7-Eleven, you'll notice there's like actually a um, small like rag, right? Like a magazine, a paper magazine with like all of the people that have been arrested in that county for the last month. <laughs> I, I want to okay. see it. I want to see yeah. it. It sounds I mean, cool, it's actually. Wild, right? It's, yeah. It's, Easy. <laughs> how do you how do you explain this kind of also this obsession of people for bad guys i mean it's somebody's creating it i mean like this kind of clerk in the some kind of clerk in some nowhere 7-eleven in georgia you know it's like he's putting it up there he's like he's looking for it it's not even just that it's like it's part of his it's part of who he is you know Yeah, I, mean, I think it's the, the more, you know, just the sort of morbidity of, uh, of life. I think people, it makes, oftentimes it makes people feel better about themselves when somebody has it off worse, right? Yeah. And so, you know, you It's do that whole thing because, you know, cr criminal stuff is like really interesting to me because, you know, you don't have to admit this on Facebook, but I guarantee you that you've probably, uh, you probably committed a crime, right? Probably pretty often. Um, you just hadn't been caught for it. And, you know, you think about those sorts of things. I mean, it could be anything from jaywalking, right? But I mean, my, my point is that there's very few people have true criminality, right? And, and that criminality is usually based upon some mental illness or some other aspects, right? When you Most intend people, to do this stuff. Right. <clears throat> and to yeah. do that, or they intend to steal something to eat because they're hungry, right? Like, yeah. And they have no access. Again, that is not an excuse for their behavior. But we as a society also have to admit that we play into that, that person's thinking and that, that their intent. 
Yeah, the, the obsession about criminals in the U.S., I think it's way more than anywhere else. This kind of, also you see it in the, in, it's the shows that are the most successful on TV is crime shows, yeah. hospital shows, and fire rescue or whatever, EMT shows. That's yeah. like the, the majority of what people want to see like in their yeah. life. I don't know. It's the one that saves, the one that fixes, and the one that, you know, that makes the crime. Because it's, it's, all, it's all combined together. Like all, yeah, all heroes, and, heroes yeah. and criminals, right? We like the good guy versus the bad guy. It's, it's yeah. a very sort of white, uh, white and black that way. It's um, crazy. I don't think it really is, right? These things are complicated and nuanced. Yeah. What do you think are the, what's the majority of the cases that you, you encounter? Like what's, what's the majority of talking about criminality, people want to hear what are people doing? You know, I'm interested of what, what's the, what's the crime, you know, so not just the, the fact that they committed it. So what's, right. the, what's the majority of the crimes that you encounter in Pennsylvania, for example? I mean, they're what they would call nonviolent property crimes, right? Stealing, eating, food, DUIs drugs you know vast majority in state and federal prisons in in america are for drug related crimes so that's a vast majority vast vast majority of people serving time and how I is mean, it in in states that are now like weed is legal like uh, california or or colorado and this kind of places how is it it changes the number changes yeah i mean the cha- the numbers changes but again there were you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of people who still have old records right so yeah. you are seeing these states like for example california who is in mass trying to wipe out criminal records for things that are legalized now which is like really important right but of course you know a lot of those people already serve time <laughs> right so yeah but if their if their record is expunged so it's all right you know it's least it's something no, it's, it's good, something. It's, it's a good start, you know. It's a good start. You can you can give around. them yeah, you can give them the time back. You yeah. can also yeah, but also I don't believe I mean I don't I I it's weird, you know what? I do believe and I don't believe about paying about your past crimes, but at the same time I mean again I can think about the German German country that paid for their mistakes that they did. They mm-hmm. they did pay and a lot of money. Question if, yeah. the, if you think the states should give back money for all this time. If, for example, I served five years, I could have made whatever minimum wage per year, you know, give a grant for these people that served for something that now is legal. For uh, example. I, that would be a great idea. I think you bring up a good point, too, that all of this incarceration is really expensive and it's all on the backs of the taxpayer, right? Yeah. So um, if we're looking at jailing costs in Philadelphia, um, we're talking about 42 to 43,000 US dollars a year to imprison someone for a drug crime. Again, what's the number again? $43,000. That's more than most of the people make uh, a year. Way more. So <laughs> that's like the top, that's had, like the top 4% in the world. So kind of think a... about if we had a less punitive culture and we said, listen, you, you fucked up, right? You violated our laws that we decided that were illegal you you really need to get yourself together. And instead of the first time, like for drugs, instead of like punishing you with four years in prison at the cost of $125,000 to the state and the taxpayer, we're going to invest $20,000 and make sure you have good public education. Like I think our, our society, the American society would be radically changed from that approach. And how, guess what? But they need to pay for it also. 
Sure, absolutely. By the law, I mean, you need to pay for a mistake you did. That's the law. Um, well, I mean, it depends. It's, you have to have an ability to pay because yeah. it would be unconstitutional if, if you were like, in, oftentimes in the voting context, it's called an unconstitutional poll tax. But like, you know, what if you're putting somebody and say they owe $200,000 for a crime they committed, but for the rest of their life, they're going to make $10,000 a year. I mean, get out of here. You're not seeing that money, right? Yeah. I mean, that's unrealistic and un, un so there's a balance, a balance of what we have to do. Um, some people, you know, I'm not a complete abolitionist. I'm close to it, um, but I'm not a complete abolitionist. And I do understand that some people deserve time in prison, but people don't realize that uh, Pennsylvania alone has the largest second degree felony murder uh, and juveniles serving life sentences in the country. We're talking about 1,200 um, what they call second-degree felony murders. Second-degree felony murder is different from first-degree. It means there was no intent. Not intention, to yeah. Life. And oftentimes, second-degree felony murder actually means that they were just involved in a robbery that ended in a murder, so they weren't actually the shooter or the stabber, et cetera, but they yeah. were there. Uh, if anybody has, uh, has any questions, also if anybody from the crowd has any question about Pennsylvania law or in general things that that about the law please feel free to write and uh, I'm sure uh, Ryan sees it also if he can answer so you were saying uh, it's a good it's a good business mind it's a very Jewish business mind it's like uh, instead of spending 200 spend 50 and also you can pay taxes and it will be way better for the country yeah I mean it will long term and that's the problem with America remember we talked about like what they have no long term memory no long term memory <laughs> That's what you're saying. All right. Because yeah. people are like, they're so, I'm, I love it now that people are so like uh, romanticized by 9-11 by and we grew from that and this. No, it was terrible for years. It, it changed was awful. the whole world. Well, that's There was what, nothing great about it. Yeah, nothing good came from that. No, it didn't. And that's where actually, you know, sort of my, um, I was in law school at the time. Um, and in fact, was at clerking with a judge. It was my first job and I joined the anti-war movement out of that, um, representing Muslims, actually representing Muslims around the country who were getting door knocked and um, targeted after 9-11. Um, the whole use of powers that the state had never used in America, right? Like completely. And we're talking about completely innocent people. We're talking about... People that had no idea that there is something like that even. Correct. They have right. never heard about terror. Right. Before that. It's, it's unbelievable. It's like... Right. Like, and, and it destroyed entire immigrant communities here in the United States. I mean, we had one in South Philadelphia, which was a huge, uh, relatively large, tight Pakistani community that was completely wiped out um, after 9-11 because they they were harassed by the state so much that they had to leave. And these are doctors and lawyers and, you know, they are Americans. They are people who commit, who, who are committed to our ideology and society. And we just completely <clears throat> threw them out. More than that, they're taxpayers. Yeah, yeah. If, if something that, anything that uh, people care about here, they pay taxes. Yes, it's they were like... very good taxpayers. And it's just what's next? I mean, what's 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 the what's the next society that you think the country will ruin? Now it's like what's what's the next? Like who's the next enemy? 
Well, I mean, I don't think we need an enemy right now. I mean, I think our enemy is big business. It's our it's our leaders, right? So if you're looking at right what's what's happening in America is is unlike anything that I think you can see across the the world. Um, you know, you live in Germany, who's handling this crisis with ease almost. Um, Canada, you're looking at different countries that have a, a a much better social safety net. We have. I don't think you understand, but 1.25 million people have already filed unemployment claims in Pennsylvania alone. We're talking about <clears throat> unemployment rates that are going to reach the Great Depression here in America. Yeah. Um, we, also, there's no way around it. It's not like you can go back. It's not a V-shaped no. thing. It's not like it spike down. It's like like a drop and a spike back. Because there's no. What's the? Where are you going back? <laughs> it's like physically, there's no places to go back. Just no, the opposite. There's, there's not. So you know, my 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 uh, job right now is basically just trying to figure out how to keep people in their homes, um, keep people from starving. Literally. Um, you need help. Because, What's up? You need help, I'm saying. Yeah, what, not only what, do you need help. What is the help that you need? I mean, we, we need masks, PPE for people that are on the front line. So yeah. our system is so fucked up. Let me be very clear. One of my clients died a couple of days ago, and they died because they didn't have access to appropriate PPE, which was just personnel, uh, yeah. you know, personnel equipment, safety yeah. protective equipment. And they died because they contracted COVID in a nursing home. Okay, employers are supposed to provide these things, but guess what? Because America in America, healthcare is is a capitalist endeavor, right? They wanted to cut costs, so they only had a certain amount of PPE available, not enough for in times of pandemic. So you're asking people who are generally the lowest paid people in America if they're lucky to have a job. We're talking about CNAs, environmental workers. Um, you know, uh, linen techs, the people that clean the hospitals and the healthcare facilities. And we're saying, you get your ass in there and be on the front line in, in this, during this time. Oh, and we'll give you minimum wage, but we won't give you goddamn masks uh, or anything else that's going to protect you. If this does not tell you <laughs> or an indicator of how fragile and fucked up our system is right here in the United States at this point, I don't know what to say to you, right? I don't know what to say to somebody if they're not seeing it. Is, do you think states are different than each other? Like, uh, you think Absolutely. they... Where, Absolutely. Where do you think is the places that people will survive more? Yes. Even though they're already talking about lower, lower numbers and social distancing and all this is helping, no doubt. We're staying at home. It's also fun. All good. We're good about it. But I'm saying... What 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 are the states that are going to suffer less from this? Well, it, it, it's, let me give you a, a background, right? So part of what's making this, so like, let's be very clear. The federal government did not create this crisis, right? No. But the federal government has accelerated this crisis to negligent levels. And in America, what's supposed to happen is your federal government is supposed to take action, right? And then it disperses things throughout the state. And that way you can move with one direction. So, for example, the federal government has stockpiles of PPE, for example, or the ability to negotiate with corporations, right, to get lower rates and get larger parts of PPE. But what our federal government has said, no, 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 we're going to leave that to the states. So now the yeah. states are competing against each other, trying to get PPE. <clears throat> 
fucking bananas. I mean, it's really <laughs> outrageous and criminal what's happening. So the so the the richer states, New York, this kind of places will get. They will have more gear than the rest. Basically. No, I would actually say it's almost the opposite because the federal government won't give anybody um, uh, the states depending on whether the state is friendly to his government or not. So, so Republican. So here, here in Florida, I'm okay. Correct. I'm gonna, I'm well, gonna survive. You're not okay because the governor of Florida basically just, you know, just issued a stay-at-home order a couple days ago, right? I have to say so, that here in Miami, specifically, people are at home for weeks already. Yes. Everything, yeah. everything is closed because it's that's that's what I always tell people here. It's like, especially people from outside of the U.S., it's so surrogated everything. Yeah. So it's in the not only in the city, it's the smallest like part of the city. Because if I'm downtown, there's different rules. If I'm in Miami Beach, there's different rules. You know, so it's like specifically where you are in your neighborhood or in your like small part of the small part of the city that you have different rules. Yeah, and well, I mean that's also was done by your mayor, right? So yeah. You had a local. You had a strong mayor who basically took action or more yeah. aggressive action than the. And he's a Democrat. Yeah, right. And he yeah. he did that. And that's so that wasn't that wasn't, you know, the governor may be failing, but your mayor enacted good. And our mayor did the same thing here in Philadelphia. Yeah, I, I th- is worried. I feel like all the Republicans are worried. You know, it's I can understand. It's it's kind of, a, you know, it's their boss. You don't want to lose yeah, your job. You'll say whatever he's he very. He retaliates. So I'm not saying that it's yeah, he's not know, a good boss. I was like, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. want to work there as much as I, I, I don't know if I was like, as much as I dream about working in American politics, I wouldn't want to be in the offices there when he's there. I feel like it's not a good, it's like a very, very evil, like a work environment. Yeah. It's like, but what do you, I started to say, it's like, well, I want to go back to the, to the crimes. What, what are the crimes that are, ah, before that, wait. What, what are you going to do the day after? PPE and all that, that's great to deal now. What do you need for the day after? We need robust, we need money uh, to the individuals that are the most impacted. So there's lots of things we can do. I mean, we just gave 4.4 billion, I mean, excuse me, 4.4 trillion dollars to corporations, like un, unmatched and unleveraged. It's, we Look at the stocks. The stocks are going up. Everything's going up. Everything's going. I mean, this shows you the discombobulation of our country. You're exactly right. You hit it on the, you nailed it. If you look at the stocks, the stocks continue yeah. to go up. If you look up Main Street, right, you look in your city and your state and everything is fucking failing. Like literally. I see from here. Yeah, everything is closed. It's failing. Uh, the thing is, the beauty, the beauty of it all that the stocks that are going up or the stocks that are the most you know i watch it every i watch it every day it's, it's one of the things i like the most because this will show you exactly where we are in the world but uh it's like american airlines united carnival which i see all the boats standing here it's like all the our docks here you know nobody's going with the boats nobody will get on the boat for the next six eight months you know or planes you know or and booking.com and all the marriott hotels hilton all these places you know all their stocks are skyrocketing well, same because thing. they got infusions of huge amounts of uh, capital from the federal government. Yeah, right? but at the same time, you can say if you're looking in in a in a trader perspective and from the stock market perspective, they're just correcting themselves yeah. because of the drop. They're going back to where they were because there is value to the company. The value sure. to the, the value to the company is properties. That, this is something that nobody has. All the restaurants, all this, whatever, it's all rental. 
we are all renting this life. This is not our life. You know, yeah. all your work, everything is just a, something that you rent in your life. As opposed to American Airlines, which has 2,700 planes, for example, which worth a lot of money, no matter how you look at it. If you use it for cargo, if you use it to transport people, it doesn't matter. It's worth a lot of money. In any case, I wanted, so what do you do? Let's, let's, you know, money, is, it's, it's big, but let's say in your neighborhood, what do you need from the people from your neighborhood to do? You know? Yeah. What can, what can they do to help? To the, well, they, the day after. The day after is that they can call their legislators and demand uh, more robust action for actual humans as opposed to corporations. I mean, look, politics, they, politicians don't move unless you ask them to move, right? I yeah. mean, they don't do things unless we demand them. That's what I was saying earlier about democracy. Democracy dies with inaction. It requires us to link hands with each other and demand with one voice collective liberation. And that liberation looks through providing actual money and resources to the people who need it the most. Right. I think that we should look at a state and determine whether a failed state or, or whether one is a failed state by how we treat our lowest impacted citizens. Right. How do we treat the people on the bottom? Because guess what? In America, that's a lot of goddamn people. Yeah. OK, let's be very clear about that. We, we are living in one of the most unequal times in American history. We're talking about Great Depression, pre pre Great Depression. Right. FDR, yeah. Great New Deal. It's unbelievably unequal in our society. And so if we are determined, if America's, if our American ideals are to live, if we are conti to continue as a nation state, we have to be judged on how we treat the most vulnerable in our society, period. What's the, yeah. I mean, this, all these things are, you know, it's amazing how it's super normal in every other country in the world. Think about it. It's like, you know, it's, you say Germany, I'm, I mean, I'm not German, but I do live there for many years. And if I compare it to Israel, it's like, I, I'm, we're kings there. We pay a lot of taxes, that's for sure. But we, we know that you can count on the state. Well, that's you know, a big, that's, but, well, that's the big lie here, right? In America, everybody says, well, you know, I, I wouldn't want to have the tax liability of Sweden, a Swedish citizen, et cetera. And you're like, are you Yeah, but I, me? it doesn't need to it, work. <laughs> right. But it's yeah. also effectively a lie because, the, you know, what is it, 7% more? Guess what? I'd pay a 7% more if I can send my kids to a good school. I'm free, have you free university, have socialized health care, which is going to take somebody, which, by the way, you know, I'm a cancer survivor, right? So, um, but for me having health insurance, if I didn't have health insurance, I probably would have lived. But even if I did live, I would have come out with a million dollars of debt. Yeah. So you're telling me that. Not, a, gonna, not a life worth, worth living. What, like, <laughs> right? I mean, what kind of society is that? Right? I, I just, I, I think it's an unfair and unequal one and we have to change it. Would you move? Um, I thought about that for a long time, um, yeah. but I'm not really one to shirk my responsibilities. And what I mean by that is, is that I feel like it's really important for me to, to stay here and fight. So, you know, I do actually believe, you know, our country is deeply um, broken and it's deeply fractured and uh, there's a lot of problems with it. But 
There are a lot of good things too. And I, and I at this point, have refused to give up on it. What are the more interesting cases you get to work with? Some well, right gossip, now, some, some, some criminal gossip. Well, I mean, a couple of cases that I'm working on that I think are really cool is um, I work right now, I represent about 40,000 delivery service, Amazon delivery service drivers for wage and hour violations around the country. And that's pretty fun. So, um, but this, this comes from a higher level or, you know, where is it coming from, these violations? I mean, if you feel, if you would take a guess, let's not say in a professional way. Is it from regional managers? Is it from whatever, shift managers? Yeah. Or it's coming from the, from the top of it? It comes from the top. It's, a, a, it's a, about its pay policies. And um, if you're interested, I mean, you know, people <clears throat> can look at different cases. A case was Hickman versus TLT, which is a class action case here in Pennsylvania that we filed and, and settled. Um, you know, I'm, we're suing, we, me and a bunch of other civil rights lawyers have been suing SEPTA, which is the fourth or fifth largest public transit agency in the country on their job applications where they were denying a wholesale people with criminal records, specifically with drug convictions from certain classifications of jobs. So that case has been going on for a couple of years. And that's a really, that went, that case went up to the third circuit, which is an appellate right before the U S Supreme court. Mm. Um, that's a fun case. I'm working right now with my nonprofit, the Philadelphia lawyers for social equity. We're doing a review on all second degree felony murder charges are people that are currently incarcerated for life for second degree felony murder charges and trying to get as many people we can out through commutation. People have to realize that these individuals have been serving um, 30 plus years for their crimes, oftentimes yeah. committed while they were a teenager or very young. Uh, I firmly believe that even if you took the life of someone else, that at some point you need to come home yeah, uh, you pay for you pay for it after a while. You pay for it. You yeah. you paid for it, right? You effectively, uh, I don't believe the state has the authority to kill someone morally, ethically, etc. Is there um, a uh, how do you call it? Uh, death penalty. Death penalty in in Pennsylvania. Um, there's yes, there there is a death penalty. It's a moratorium right now because our governor firmly doesn't believe in the death penalty, so it's been paused. But yeah. yes, there are plenty of individuals currently serving and and on are on death row. How does that feel? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> all right, you're up. <laughs> it's like it's like the, it's even worse, no? When they don't. Well, know. they're yeah, they're they're not out, right? It's just a pause. So I mean, there's. But these are that. people. I mean, what is out? It's either this or they're going to do life anyway. Correct. What's the longest? What's the longest you encountered of somebody on death row? Well, the longest person I have in prison right now on second degree felony murder has been in prison for 47 years. The person is 80 years old. And I would say, um, <laughs> I would say, uh, you know, what is an 82? You know, is he a safety risk? That person is safety. And more yeah, now, now he's more in the risk groups for, for getting a corona. Well, <laughs> more, yeah. than, more than anything. Somebody That's asked you, right. which country, what country would you move uh, Oh. Um, we actually thought about um, we we actually thought about uh, um, moving to Germany actually to Berlin for a while. Um, I also love Stockholm, Sweden. Um, I, love I love Philly also. What's up? I love Philly also. Philly, love Philadelphia Philly. as well. Somebody it's, was it's asking a... me about the 
cost of keeping yeah. an eight year old in prison. So the current cost, I mean, of jail, I already kind of talked about as was about 42 to 43,000. Um, I, it hovers the state as well, hovers around that. So we're, we're talking about a substantial amount of money to keep somebody an 80 year old in prison, uh, every year. And again, that money comes directly from tax revenue. Does they have medical? Do they have medical there in jail? Yeah. I mean, really terrible medical, but yeah, I mean, it's more than uh, what the most, the most people have. Yeah. So people don't realize something that like prison actually really impacts people's not only mental health, but physical well-being. And I'm not saying this to, to say, oh, boo-hoo, but I'm just saying that they actually count people 50 years or older in prison are, are known as being geriatric. Yeah. And that is because your body, you know, a, a normal 50, like a, a normal 50 year old is not going to look like a 50 year old who spent 20 years in prison. That person maybe looks like a 70 year old, right? Out of prison. Yeah, yeah. I read a lot of things about it also. It's a very intense period for your body. It's like, uh, it's the same thing about, I mean, just the opposite about being a football player, for example, you know, and, and getting out of the league when you're 35, 36, your body, you know, and the way you are, you're not in the age, in the normal age, you know, when yeah. you retire. When you retire yeah. from that, it's the same kind of uh, extreme, 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 extreme condition that you're in all day yeah yeah and it's a great question there was uh whether this 80 year old person is able to leave prison and have no family members to support him would they come out of prison completely broke well that's true yes um and is there a system to help them there's a patchwork of a system system to help and, and you you nailed the you you nailed it really because someone who is 80 years old and is coming out of prison probably almost has zero to little familial ties that are going to be able to help them um so not even a, talk about how the place looks outside. right <laughs> it's like yeah, I mean, the world not, yeah don't even know what a cell phone is etc yeah. um so there are patchwork depending on which jurisdiction and when i say um malu uh jurisdiction i mean which which county which state etc some are better than others but there are a patchwork of system um but i would argue that it needs to be more robust because the money that you're saving by letting someone out versus, you know, get put reentering society is is a lot less. Either way, the taxpayer is paying for it. So I would send them know, to yeah. I would send them to retire at some beach community somewhere. It is create creates. There's so many spaces here. What's what's the problem to build to build? I mean, it's a new prison, let's say it like that, but just more free, a more free kind of prison, you know, so can well, you I mean, you hit the nail on the head again about like there's plenty of room remember we we pride ourselves in america as calling ourselves the richest country in the world right yeah and we have vast amounts of property that are that are empty in every city and every rural community we have plenty of uh, spaces to house not only obviously prisoners coming home but more importantly or not even more importantly i didn't mean to say more importantly but homeless people currently homeless people right now we have enough resources and space to shelter people, to provide them access to housing. And we just don't do it. We don't do it because we really firmly don't really, we believe that we are a nation of pulling yourself up from the bootstraps. Yeah. It's of course just a false, you know, false, false argument. Yeah. I mean, also it's who will pay for that? Would you raise the taxes? We're paying for it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like, it's like, what else can you do? You can raise more taxes. You can raise the taxes for the companies. Well, I don't even know. The problem is that nobody that, nobody, nobody that cares control this money even. There is money. 
Well, that there you go. There is actual money. Yeah. It's about our priorities as a society, right? We spend more money on uh, war, for example, right? I mean, are you telling me that we can't peel out a couple billion dollars to provide free access to health care from our military budget? You know, oh, I didn't Even accommodating see- all the homeless people in L.A., how much will it cost? I mean, there's lots of studies on that I can't study, but it's not even yeah. that much. I mean, yeah. it's expensive, but it's not, you know, also what they say, there's lots of studies that talk about, you know, when you give people sheltering and you give them people safe housing, other, thing, other, other uses of um, taxpayer money and resources actually go down, right? Because yeah. once you're getting them into less a- policing, less everything. Mm-hmm. Correct. It's a... Uh... It's a very uh, dire, anything, anything good, anything good that you can tell me about the whole, the whole system. I mean, because it's so complicated. I, I, I find it so hard to understand. First of all, why are there so many hands in the system? Why are there so many people that can say something? Let's say like that. Why there are, even in every state, there's a governor, there's this, there's that. There's so many people that can say something, you know, for you know, in some way, but uh, at the same time, it feels like nobody can do anything. Nobody, nothing can be done at the same time. Yeah, but that's purposeful, and that's what I'm talking about. Things can done, can be done, and we can change everything. What we have a problem with in America is a lack of imagination for liberation, and we need to think the impossible. We need to believe the impossible. And more importantly, we need to link hands again with each other, with our neighbors, our friends, through music, through art, through politics, etc. And we need to push this agenda forward because that's the only way we're going to change it is through collective action, period. <sighs> yeah, that's true. Just, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure everybody, everybody can do something. Everybody can participate. I, f- I wonder how would you think if, we, if you would still live in, in Albany, for example? Well, if you can, I mean, if you can still do something about it. I mean, you live in I, Philly. We live in cool cities. We live in cities that people care, honestly care. Mm-hmm. Most of the places, think, people don't. I, I think that, um, and a lot of times, it's one of the things that I regret um, about my life. I don't regret tons of things, but sometimes I do question about, like, you know, did I make the right move by moving away and, and, and not fighting, for example, in where I grew up? I will tell you that I, personally I had to do it because it was it was soul crushing where I lived at the time. Um, but there is, I think, a legitimate argument to say, um, why didn't you stay and fight in Albany? Um, I think that's legitimate. And I question that every day. Not sure I would have any bigger impact or less impact. But it is, a, I think, a valid question. It's something that I grapple with and think about often. I think the good thing about what's happening now is the fact that there is no more where to run. It will be very difficult to change your location at this point. So yeah. most people will need to deal with wherever they are. That's right. You know, that's, that's, right. The, that's, the, that's one of the beauties in anything. Also your local arts, whatever. Everything is going to be, everything is going to be a local thing. Yep. It's lo- we got to start local, right? They always say that po- all politics is local. And I've always firmly believed that. Would you run uh, for office? Gonna... What's up? Would you run for office? Any kind of so. office? No? No. 
No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I technically am elected in office to what they call a committee person seat here in Philadelphia, which is a very localized. So in other words, uh, voters from about a five, no, about a 10 block radius voted me to represent their interest in the city of Philadelphia. But I don't, I don't think so, right? I, I, I am more, I, I like to be an agitator, an advocate yeah. too much. And I think that, you know, politics is very important, but I think um, it would limit me in ways in which I'm not really ready to be limited. Because I don't give a fuck about power other than to use it on those that, are, uh, that don't have it. What's going to be the book title of your imaginary book? <laughs> It'll be imaginary because I'm not writing a book. Uh, <laughs> I don't <It's>... know. <laughs> But you should. There's a lot of good things to, you know, people need information. I think we're missing, we're missing the, the basic knowledge. As much as people think that they know stuff, they don't know anything. You know, even, uh, even in this, whatever, even in your state, people in your state don't know the state that, that, that there are. Well, that's what I, no that's pun what intended. Trying, yeah, that, well, that's what I was trying to ca caution you on, on that, that piece about when I said, you know, ask people what they need, which is, I hope I didn't come across today as like, I know everything because I don't. Um, and I don't want to pretend like I know. The only thing that I do know is that we can't move forward without collective action. That's the only thing that I, I will, that's a hill I will die on. And I firmly and, and fundamentally will believe that to my grave. Um, and, I, and I also think that it's a responsibility of every single person to speak up and speak out. Those are my two fundamental things. Everything else is in play. You know, everything else is in play. All right. We'll finish with that, I think. Absolutely. Thanks for your time. It was Thanks very, for having me. Very enlightening. Enlightening. Enlightening.